0: All right, Um, we have an opportunity this morning to hear from the word of the Lord, from the Gospel of John. So if you took your Bibles with you this morning, which I always encourage you to do, um, turn to the fourth of the four Gospels. So the New Testament begins, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and we're in John chapter uh, 13. Also, the words of this passage that we're going to be reading this morning will be displayed um, on the uh, overhead. Now... Just give you a little of a, a bit of uh, an intro here. This is the last sermon that we have in our Mercy Ministry series. We've been going through uh, every other week series on um, the call to us to show mercy to those um, in this body, but those on the outside. And if you were um, praying with um, Elder Dave Lar, you, you remember maybe about two-thirds of the prayer. mentioned uh, he said something to the fact that that Lord remind us that we are not here for ourselves only but we are here for others and we are here to live a life of service and care for others and that's exactly the point that Jesus is making here in this last passage that we are considering together so I want to draw your attention now to John chapter 13, this is part of what we call the farewell discourse of Jesus. And, And kids, what that means is, that's kind of a technical term that theologians use, but beginning in chapter 13, Jesus basically is saying goodbye to his disciples. He's been with them for three years, he's been teaching them, he's been praying with them, they've been living life together. And now Jesus knows that the next day, because he's in the upper room observing the Lord's Supper with his disciples now in this passage, and he knows the next day he's going to die so he doesn't have much time with them. And so he's saying his goodbyes, and he is in this passage displaying to them a simple act that is to remind them of the nature of their ministry that they are to perform while he is gone, but in the presence of his spirit. John chapter 13, let's read these words. "'Rose from the supper, and he laid aside his outer garments, "'and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. "'Then he poured water into a basin "'and began to wash the disciples' feet "'and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. "'He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, "'Lord, do you wash my feet?' "'Jesus answered him, "'What I am doing you do not understand now, "'but afterwards you will understand.' And Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. And that's where we're going to uh, end our reading. In this rather, I think it's a rather interesting passage, really, once you begin to dive deep into it and, and unpack it. Jesus washing of the feet of his uh, disciples. You know, if, if you read this book, you will see both in the Old Testament and the New Testament um, examples of this, of and callings for, encouragements to wash uh, each other's feet. And it seems strange in this day and age because I don't think that we have ever practiced that here. And I know of a number of other churches that do not enter into this practice, although Jesus says in the passage that you ought to, as I have done to you, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So some churches do this and some churches don't. I don't know if you've ever experienced a foot washing or watched a foot washing. I remember it was about 30 years ago when Joy and I were invited to go to a wedding of a young couple. And during the wedding ceremony, I'll never forget this, they, they washed each other's feet as a sign of submission and service to each other. That was the first time I ever saw that. It was the last time I ever saw that. There are also churches today that engage in this practice. Some of them engage in this practice where members wash each other's feet on a service called Monday Thursday. Maybe you've heard that term before, which is usually a church service that revolves around Jesus's time spent with his disciples in the upper room on the night before Jesus's crucifixion. So sometimes rather than celebrating a Good Friday service, they will celebrate a Monday Thursday service. There are also other churches that celebrate this or at least commemorate foot washing during the celebration of the Lord's Supper. So the idea is this, that in the Lord's Supper, not only do we commemorate our union with Christ through the bread and the wine, and not only do we commemorate also the communion that we have with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, but they go one step further. That is an expression of their union with Christ and union with each other they take time to wash each other's feet. Now, some of you might be wondering, well, listen, why don't we do that? Why don't we do that here? And the reason for that, that, that most uh, Bible scholars and theologians, uh, the reason what they give for that is basically they say that when we, when we look at the words of Jesus here, we don't believe that they are prescriptive. That is, that Jesus has commanded this for all ages, like he has called us throughout the ages to observe the two sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So they don't take Jesus' words as prescriptive, as a command, but simply as descriptive of the kinds of humility and service that we are to carry out to each other and others in the world. So Basically, as we look now at this passage, what we simply call the foot washing, what we're going to see is Jesus demonstrates to his disciples, and Jesus demonstrates to us also this morning, the kind of attitude, the kind of spirit of humility that we are to have and service that we have to each other, and especially those outside the walls of this building to whom God calls us to show mercy. Because if the attitude is not right, if the spirit is not right, if we're not right in here, we're either not going to administer mercy to others, or if we do administer mercy to others, we're going to kind of view it as kind of a, just a thing that we should do, but not something that first and foremost arises within our hearts. So with that kind of background, let's go and take a look at the passage. We find ourselves here this morning in what we call the upper room. As I said, this is part of the farewell discourse of Jesus where he's spending time with his disciples. And part of the time that he's spending with his disciples is first of all celebrating the Passover and then the fulfillment of the Passover, which is the Lord's Supper. So Jesus is spending this time with his disciples. And what Jesus wants to do now before his disciples is leave them with an indelible act something that will stick with them, that will remind them of the kind of attitude and the kind of heart that they should have in carrying out mercy ministry on behalf of Jesus because Jesus is about to leave them. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you know that that when Jesus died, you know that's not the end of the the story. Jesus rises from the dead, and then he ascends into heaven, and then he pours forth the power of his Spirit upon his disciples to help them carry out their ministry in the world. Well, now he's leaving them with an indelible act of the kind of attitude with which they should carry out that ministry. And what is that indelible act? It's very simple. It's a foot-washing. Now, you might ask yourself the question, of all the acts that Jesus could leave with his disciples, and with all the words that he could speak to his disciples at this point, why does Jesus do this all in the context of a simple foot washing? You know what? I don't think you're going to be able to find the answer in this passage. But I know that you're going to be able to find the answer in another gospel writer who also records what happened in the upper room, and that's the gospel writer Luke. So, if you A.V., if you put on the Luke passage there for us, please. Luke 22, verses 24 through 27. Now, imagine this. The disciples are with Jesus in the upper room. They're observing the Lord's Supper. And then in the midst of the Lord's Supper, and this really reveals the immaturity of the disciples, they start arguing with each other. There's a dispute. And the dispute revolves around which of them are going to be greatest in the kingdom of God that Jesus is going to Bring. Let's enter into that dispute. A dispute arose among the disciples as to which of them was the greatest. What an opportunity, right? What a time to do this, right? Jesus is about ready to die, and they're arguing among each other. And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But this should not be with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become the youngest, and the leader among you is the one who serves. For who's the greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am the one among you who serves. Jesus is like, you need to stop. Stop your arguing and this dumb argument that you have who of you is the greatest? Now, behind this is the disciples' thought that Jesus, yes, is a great king, but they had a very different conception than Jesus as regards what kind of kingdom he has come to bring. Many conservative Jews at the time thought that when Jesus came, he was going to establish as the Messiah really a physical, powerful kingdom, the kind of kingdom that would exercise power and authority over their oppressors, over the Jewish subjugators, who at this time were the Roman Empire. And they thought that the Messiah would come and free them from these oppressors and usher in a time of shalom and a time of universal peace. So the disciples were wondering, once he establishes that kingdom, then who of us is going to be in positions of power and authority in that kingdom? So they're arguing among each other who is going to be greatest and who's going to be right alongside of Jesus when he, when he exercised the power of this kingdom. And Jesus says this, he says, um, first of all, he doesn't, he doesn't go on and correct their understanding of the kingdom, that will be later, and that will be revealed by the Spirit, who he will pour out. But for now, Jesus says, actually, the one who is greatest is the one who lowers himself and actually serves Three times, if you notice in this passage, the word serve is used. the verbal form of a, of a noun form of a word in the original language, which is some, something that we have heard of before, diakonos, from which we get our English term deacon, and we have deacons here. But in a sense, we are all deacons in terms of having to serve one another. And that the thing is that that word diakonos, the idea behind that in the original language points to a person being a busboy, a table waiter. A person who goes, if you go to a restaurant, right, and you got the waiter, the waitress come, they take your dirty dishes and they bring them to the dishwasher in the back so the the dishwasher can take care of those plates, spoons, knives, what have you. And Jesus says, really, we all have pride and we all have measures of self-importance and self-absorption. He knows this especially in his disciples. He said, if we're going to rid ourselves of that pride and that self-importance, Then we need to humble ourselves and view ourselves for who we really are and as nothing but busboys, table servers, those who are willing to condescend and bring themselves very low in order to serve the needs of others. And I want you to notice in this passage, Jesus doesn't preach at his disciples and make this point like I'm making the point now. No, what he does is he demonstrates this by means of a very simple act, and that is a foot-washing. Now, John records the foot washing here, and I want you to notice something. Take a look at verses 3 through 5, uh, A.V., if you put those up, verses, um, the first part of chapter 13, verses 3, 4, and 5, and if you have your Bibles, take a look at that here. And I want you to notice that John describes in detail the preparation for the foot washing and the foot washing itself. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, now notice, he rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, it may not be the most powerful part of the point of the passage, but I think what John is doing is he's taking time to follow the sequential actions of Jesus as he is preparing himself to wash the feet of his disciples. In fact, if you take note in verses 4 and 5, John records seven sequential actions that Jesus is performing here. Think in order to help develop in our minds, in our imaginations, exactly, exactly what is going on here that Jesus is engaging in a very significant act, although a very simple act and a humble act. He's washing the feet of his disciples. Now, at this point in the passage, I want us to pull back from just a moment, as I sometimes say, just put the pause button here, right, for the moment. And there's a rather kind of parenthetical piece to this story, part of the story that's kind of in parentheses, where as Jesus is washing the feet of his disciples. He comes to Peter, and this is a significant moment because Peter is a leader among the disciples. So Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, and he comes to Peter, and Peter is just, he's, he's incredulous. Kids, that means he, he, can't, he can't believe this. That Jesus is actually going to condescend, he's going to lower himself and actually wash Peter's feet because Peter's saying, listen, there's a kind of a weird role reversal here. Your teacher and your Lord, Jesus, and you're you're coming down and you're washing my feet, actually should be the other way around. What I should do is I should be washing your feet. And so Peter concludes, and he says very boldly to Jesus, you will never wash my feet. Now, this is not an embellishment from the podium here, like where Peter says, oh, you'll never wash my feet. That comes out of the original language. In the Greek languages, you know, you learn this in seminary where there's what, what's called, you learn very early on what's called an umed construction. That is, it's, 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 in the original language, it's like, a, it's a double negator. So when the ESV here in the English translation notes that Peter says, he just doesn't say to Jesus, no, I, I don't want you to wash my feet, but you will never wash my feet. That's not an embellishment, that's not exaggeration. The Ume construction drives that point home, where Peter is so incredulous, he cannot believe what's happening here. he says, Lord, there's no way you're going to do this. But Jesus says to Peter, Peter, unless, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. In other words, you, you, you have nothing to do with me. Now, I want you to notice, when, when, you, when, you, when you deal with the Bible, even in your own devotional reading, and you're reading the Scriptures, because we believe in what's called verbal inspiration of the Bible, that is that the very, not just the phrases, but the very words of the Bible are inspired in our God-breathed, and you get, need to take those words very seriously. And I want you to notice here that Jesus doesn't say, unless I wash your feet, Peter, but unless I wash you, you have no part of me. So what Jesus is doing here to help us understand this is that Jesus is moving from the physical washing of feet to the washing of what? To the washing away of sins because he knows the heart of Peter and he knows our hearts. Listen, our hearts are not naturally prone to service and going beyond ourselves. We're naturally self-absorbed. We're naturally self-centered. We naturally just focus in on ourselves. I think that's why, why when Dave prayed, it was a reminder to us because he understood this as well that, Lord, we're not here naturally just for ourselves, but we're here for the sake of others. That's really at the heart of mercy ministry. And Jesus knew that Peter, who had been arguing with the other disciples as to whom, which of them was the greatest, that doesn't show pride and self importance and self absorption. I don't know what does. And Jesus, knowing that we also need to understand that, basically says, listen, You all need to be washed. You need to be washed away of your sins, and you need to be in right standing with God before you truly understand and before you will truly enact mercy ministry in the lives of others. Because, brothers and sisters, when we understand how God lowered himself to the undeserving like you and me to wash away our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ, listen, it's only when you truly understand that That you're going to have this heart in you that says, Lord, if you have done that for me, who am I just to say thank you and go on in my life? Compels me to go outward with a grateful heart, giving to others as you, O Lord, have given to me. Jesus says to Peter, you need to be washed. All the disciples need to be washed. He says, you're all washed. You're all clean. Except one. He mentions Judas. I'll get back to Judas in just a moment. So anyway, Peter speaks to Peter, but he doesn't preach a full-length sermon to Peter. Now, in order to demonstrate the kind of heart of service that arises from the washing away of sins, he performs this simple act of foot washing. So, he washes the feet of his disciples. And when he's done, Jesus says, Do you understand what I just did? Because so many times the disciples are kind of clueless, right? Just, "Did you understand what he did to you? And before they can answer, Jesus says this. If you have your Bibles open or put on the A.V. Verse 13, 14, and 15. Jesus says, You call me teacher and Lord. He says this after the foot washing, and you're right, for so I am. If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also then ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that... You also should do just as I have done to you. And then verse 16, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now let's just take just a, a minute to unpack this. Take a look at verse 13. Jesus says, you all here, disciples, what do you call me? You call me two things. You call me teacher, rabbi, and you call me lord. Lord. Now, you understand, for three years I have been teaching you. You have not been teaching me. I've been teaching you, which reveals a position of power and authority and influence. But Jesus says more you not only call me teacher, you call me Lord. This is even more important. You call me master. You know that I'm the one who possesses all power and authority in this world and in the world above. Jesus refers to himself as the Lord of lords and the King of kings. This is who I am, says Jesus. So you recognize that. Yet Jesus says, as your Lord and your teacher, I have lowered myself to you to wash your feet, to leave you with an example that as I have done to you, so also you are to do yourselves and for others. I leave you as an example. And then Jesus says, verse 16, Truly, truly, I say to you. Now, some of the older translations have it, verily, verily. But whenever you find those words, truly, truly, or verily, verily, what Jesus is doing is he's really underscoring a point. In in other words, he's saying, listen up to this. Jesus says, A servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus is saying, listen, A a master is greater than his servant. But more than that, Jesus says, the one who sends a person on a mission is more important than the sender. And we go, yeah, that makes sense. And yet Jesus says this, and yet the greatest one among you is the one who lays aside these prerogatives, this position to serve the needs of others. Now you think about how countercultural that is. We live in a world where we look up to individuals who have power, who have authority, who are rich, who are famous, who have influence, right? These are the people that are out there on Instagram. These are the people out there, you know, speaking their words, right? So interesting to me, I don't know what it is like in Canada, but back in the States, it's like whenever there's an important position before the nation, then all of a sudden these figures from Hollywood figure in, and they start talking about these things as if we need to listen to them because don't you know they're famous? Don't you know they're the ones with the money? Don't you know that they're the ones on the screen that we get to see? And Jesus says, that's a bunch of baloney. You know who the greatest one is? The one who humbles himself. The one who serves The one who follows my example, says Jesus, right? How about those words of Jesus where he said, you know, um, the Son of Man, in reference to himself, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You want to be noticed as a person? Do we want to be noticed as a church? How about doing the countercultural thing? How about not seeking positions of power and authority and influence? But how about humility and service to the most needy? So, in this passage we see the, really what we call the heart of service. And in this passage we see something of the heart of Jesus. You know, when we, when we look at the heart of Jesus, we, we, we are allowed to, to see how that heart is directed inward, and outward and upward, just like the vision of Pathway. Inward, upward, outward. First of all, when we look at the heart of Jesus, we see something of the inside of his heart. Now, I want you to think about this. I want you to reflect on this. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, he's observing the Lord's Supper. They partake of bread, and they partake of the fruit of the vine, all pointing to what Jesus is about to experience the very next day. Now, Jesus knows. Jesus is never, you know, it's interesting that as you look at Jesus' ministry, and he oftentimes appears the victim, he is never completely the victim. Jesus is orchestrating all things to move them to their ultimate end, which is what? It's the cross. And Jesus knows that the cross is coming. Jesus knows that those nails are going to be driven into his hands and his feet. Jesus knows that he's going to experience humiliation. Jesus knows that he is going to be mocked. Jesus knows that the full wrath of God Almighty will come upon him because of our sins that are placed upon his shoulders, which will ring from him ultimately the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows all of that is coming in detail. And you would think if there was a person, because this is the way you and I would be, if we knew that we were going to experience that kind of torch the next day, our minds would be consumed, our hearts would be consumed. And we would be so overcome with fear and with dread, all we could do is think about ourselves and no doubt be engaging in great forms of self-pity. Not Jesus. Isn't that interesting? The night before he's to be crucified, Jesus puts that all aside, and he bends down, and he washes the feet of his disciples. Just very quickly, a reminder to us, in the midst of our natural disposition toward toward thinking simply about ourselves, that's our natural tendency or to be self-satisfied or self-pitying or go through certain depressions or blues that we all experience upon occasion. You know, one of, the, one of the main ways that you can get out of yourself and one of the ways that you can get out of some of the blues that you sometimes experience is to leave yourself aside like Jesus did in the upper room and go out and minister to somebody else. Maybe a word of encouragement, maybe a card of encouragement, maybe going to the Cyrus Center, maybe going to the homeless shelter, doing something for each other or someone who is completely lost. It gets us out of ourselves. And you ever notice that when you start giving to somebody, all of a sudden the gloom or the self-centeredness that you experience begins to dissipate, simply go away. Isn't that what we looked at a couple of weeks ago in terms of Isaiah 58 as we're going through the series on mercy ministry? Would you put Isaiah 58 up there, please? The Lord says, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will shine in the darkness and your gloom will be as the noonday. All these clouds will dissipate and the sun will begin to shine. And the Lord will guide you and satisfy your desire in the scorched places and make your bones strong. And you will be like a well-watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Jesus, to dissipate some of the fear, gives to his disciples. We see something of the inner heart of of Jesus. But we also see that Jesus' heart, we don't only peer into the inside of Jesus, but we see that Jesus' heart is also directed outward. At this point, it's directed to the disciples. Now, I want you to think very carefully this morning exactly whose feet Jesus is washing. So Jesus gets this towel and he has this bowl and he starts washing the feet of disciples and he goes one by one by one. And he comes to Peter, and Peter says, you'll never wash my feet. And she says, yes, I'm going to wash your feet. And he does. He washes the feet of Jesus. Or yeah, he washes the feet of Peter. Who's Peter? Peter is the one who, in a very short time, is going to deny Jesus. Not once, not twice, but three times. Peter's going to be the one who's going to say to others around him to save his own skin, I never knew the man. Yes, it's that Peter. Jesus bends down, he washes his feet. Jesus moves on to the other disciples. He comes to Judas. On more than one occasion in this passage, we get the indication, very clear indication, that Jesus understands what Judas is going to do. He's not when Judas finally betrays him. It's not like Jesus is shocked and goes, "Oh, I never knew this was going to happen." Jesus knew all the way along the line that this was going to take place, that this was going to be filled, uh, fulfilled from Old Testament passages or predictions. So Jesus comes to Judas. And and rather than Jesus saying, I will wash all the feet of the disciples, but Judas, not you, because you are not washed. No, he also washes the feet of Judas. And then he goes on to wash the other feet of the disciples. And those other disciples, what will happen? Do you remember this? When Jesus is arrested? The Gospel of Mark tells us very clearly that when Jesus was arrested, man, they took off. They fled. They they abandoned Jesus. (laughs) Yet Jesus washes their feet. Jesus washes the feet of the undeserving. Hmm. Don't you find that, that if you're called to give to someone else, it may be your money, your time, your resources, that you're more apt to invest in someone who you feel deep down is really going to benefit from it? than someone who may squander it? I think that's a natural reaction. We give to those who think will benefit. We give to those who we think probably deserve it. That's what's in our spirit. Are you willing to give to those who in the end might bite your hand? Are you willing to give to those who may squander the time and the resources, or the money that you give them. See, Jesus didn't think in those terms. Jesus knew that they were undeserving, just as he has, understands that we are undeserving. Yet Jesus says, "Give, show mercy to each other and to those in the world." That's what that's what I've done for you, my disciples. And then finally, very briefly, Jesus' heart is directed upward, upward to his position, to his office as the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He says, I'm the great teacher, and I am the Lord. I'm the universe, the universe is Lord. I'm the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, yet I am willing to do is I'm willing to condescend for your sake and become a busboy, a table waiter. If you and I think of all the benefits that we have in Jesus Christ, and if you think of who we are in Jesus Christ as those whose sins have been washed away and those who are in right standing with God. And if you think of the inheritance that awaits us, that's a lot. And the Lord never says, now you just appreciate that, and you say thank you and go on with your lives. Let that be the catalyst or the motivation to give and to give to those who are truly in need. I want to show you one thing, and then I want to draw to a close. Would you put up that photo here? You say, well, who, who is that? Kids, I want you to take a look at that. This is especially for you. That woman in the middle, her name is Renata. Um, this was back in Phoenix. goes back maybe about, I don't know, six to eight years ago, and she... Um, You might be wondering, kids, why she's wearing a helmet. The reason why she's wearing a helmet is because she's got a a terrible disease called Huntington's disease. And it ravages the mind, and it ravages the body, and it makes the body imbalanced. And what would happen is, at least at this part of her life, it's a progressive disease, She, she would fall to the ground and she would hurt herself sometimes. And so she's part of this institution. She's married. She's married at the time, two kids. And so they put a helmet on her head, and you see she's in a wheelchair. She can't really go around, uh, walk around at all. And so, what I would do is I would I would visit her, um, usually about once a, a month. And it was it was a terrible institution. It was a it was a bare room, almost had walls like uh, or floor um, a floor like this gym and basic walls like this. And uh, she would she would sleep with a simple mattress on the floor. And um, that was it because she she had to make sure she didn't fall out of bed. She lived in this institution, ate awful food, and with other people who who were like her. She never really got out. And I came to her room one time, and you can tell it's about this time of year, actually, almost exactly this time of year. And I came to her room, and I thought, you know what? Everybody needs a Christmas tree. So I don't know if I got it for her the church did, whatever, kind of like we do for people here, right? We get them Christmas trees. We got her this Christmas tree, and I got ornaments and put that up here, and then we just took a picture together. Now, listen, honestly, I don't show you this to say, well, boy, what a righteous servant I am. I don't. I just wanted to use this as an example of something. I wanted you visually to see this as something that we should be engaged in as as well. Because you know what? Our, our, Our faith, our faith at its most deepest level really rests in, as Jesus says, love for God and love for neighbor. Right? And... And I go back to the words of James where James says, This is true religion. True religion is visiting orphans and widows in their distress and remaining unstained from the world. That's pretty simple, isn't it? That's not deep, deep theology. And yet it's what Jesus through the foot washing calls us to do. So, brother, sister, I leave you, I leave you just with this. You know what? There are, there are no celebrities here. There's no celebrities here. You know what we are? According to Jesus, we are a bunch of diakonos, we are a bunch of servants, we are a bunch of bus boys, we're a bunch of table waiters, we're the ones who collect dirty dishes off of tables and take them to the back of the restaurant so the dishwasher can wash the dishes. That's all we are. Yeah, in the end, what are we according to this passage? We're a bunch of foot washers and may those words of Jesus just get burned into our soul where Jesus says as i have washed your feet so also also you should you wash the feet of others i've given you myself says jesus as an example okay let's pray together heavenly father Lord, whatever vestiges of self-importance or self-centeredness or entitlement reside within us, we pray, O Lord, that these testimonies to the flesh would be crucified, would be put to death and completely buried so that we might fully come alive in you. Oh, Lord, give us your spirit to see ourselves for who we really are. Servants, footwashers of one another and also the world. Increasingly, Lord, give us that kind of heart so that we may mimic you, we may reflect you, we may imitate you in this very venture of showing mercy to each other and others outside of this gym. God, grant that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.